Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. So we're continuing our study in the book of Philippians this morning, and we're not moving very fast. We will pick up the pace, or at least we'll bite off larger chunks in weeks to come. But this morning, I want to focus on one question. It comes from verse 1, and the question is, what is a saint? And what does it take to be one? Now, the Catholics use the term saints primarily in a very specific way. They use it to mean a person who is known for what they call heroic sanctity. So that's how they use the term. And they have a very formal and a very specific way of identifying who the saints are. It involves examining their lives after they're dead. Martyrdom helps. And then there need to be at least two miracles directly associated with the prospective saint's intercession. It's not the way that the Apostle Paul uses the term here in Philippians. And it's not the way it's used elsewhere in Scripture. But at least they know what they mean when they say saint. So what do we mean? And more importantly, what does Paul mean when he says saints? I'm going to begin by uh, reading the first 11 verses of chapter 1, although we're only going to focus on the second part of verse 1. So follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 1, again, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So Paul says he's writing to all the saints 
in Christ Jesus. And specifically, in this letter, those who are at Philippi. So, who are these people? What does Paul mean when he calls them saints? And how did they come to be saints? Let's begin with the question, who does Paul include in the saints? Who does he mean? Who's he referring to? When he says to the saints, is he singling out a certain group within the church as a whole in Philippi? Is this just the ones that Paul considers as having reached a status of sainthood? Or is it broader than that? If you look at how this term is used in other places in Scripture, you'll see that it's always inclusive within the body of believers. When Ananias is called by the Lord to seek out Paul in Acts chapter 9, this is after Paul has met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's confronted and he's saved. And God tells Ananias to find Paul and to minister to him. And Ananias responds, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, Saul was not singling out specific Christians when he was persecuting the church in those days. It says earlier in chapter 9 that if he found any belonging to the way, he arrested them. And when Peter was at Lydda in Acts 9.32, it's clear that this refers to all the believers who were there when he went to the saints there. In fact, earlier in that same verse, it says that he was there among them all. Perhaps even more compelling is that in his letters, like this one that Paul writes to the Philippians, and the one he writes to the Ephesians, and to the Colossians, in each of those cases where he addresses the letter to the saints, it becomes clear as you continue to read the letter that he is addressing all of the believers who are there. In Philippians 1 verse 7, for instance, he writes... It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. So who is Paul writing to? All partakers of grace. That is, everyone who has been saved by the grace of God. Not some special group within that larger group. Paul applies the term saints to all believers. Whatever he means when he says saints, it includes all Christians. That was true of the Philippians. It was true of the Ephesians when he calls them saints. It's true of the Colossians. And it's true here at Trinity Bible Church. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you are a partaker of his grace, if you have been saved by grace 
through faith in Christ, then whatever Paul means when he says saints in Christ Jesus, that applies to you. And that's really the point of this for us this morning. For us to examine more closely who we are in Christ Jesus. So the second question that I want to consider this morning is, what does Paul mean by saint? First of all, the word literally means holy. The root word for holy in Greek is hagios. The word we translate saints is hagios. And you can see just by looking at it or by hearing it that it's just another form of the same word. They look alike. They sound alike. And so when the Philippians read or heard the word hagios, they would have reflexively known that what's really being said here is holy. In English, the word saint is related to the word sanctify. They both come from the same Latin root, and they both have to do with holiness. But I don't think most of us pick up on that. At least it's not an automatic association for us. Because saint and sanctify don't sound quite enough alike. The point is that saint means holy. Paul is very much writing to all the holy in Christ Jesus. And that is how we should understand it. But that doesn't really answer the question. It just refines the question a bit. What then does Paul mean by holy? If this is how Paul identifies the believers who are in the church at Philippi, the ones that he's writing to here, then what does he mean when he calls them holy? We're familiar with the word. We hear it and read it all the time. Holy Spirit, holy angels, holy land, holy name, holy ground. But what does it mean? What does holy really mean? Before we can begin to answer what Paul meant when he called the believers in Philippi holy, we really need to turn our attention to God, who is holy. Because what it means to be holy is defined by who God is. And although we may find out that what it means that God is holy is not exactly the same thing that it means for us to be holy, it's where we have to start. What does it mean that God is holy? Holiness is an attribute of God. And of all his attributes, I believe that it is the most difficult one for us to understand. We've talked about this before. But when it comes to God's other attributes, 
we have some frame of reference to understand them. God is love, for instance. Love is one of God's chief attributes. And while we will never fully comprehend the magnitude of God's love, we do know to a degree what love is. We love our friends. We hate our enemies, but we love our friends. Jesus said so. The love we have for our friends falls far short of God's love. But at least we have some point of reference. And so when we read God is love, we at least have a starting point to understand what that means. And that's true of most aspects of God's character. Even something like his righteousness. We have innately a basic sense of right and wrong. It's written on our hearts. Even if we don't know him, we know the basic difference between right and wrong. In our fallen state, that's been largely perverted. But enough remains that we know what it means, at least on some level, when we hear that God is righteous. And even when it comes to an attribute like God's sovereignty, although the concept quickly escapes my grasp, I can at least understand in some rudimentary way what it means that God is in control of all things. But God's holiness What does that even mean? Sometimes we think of God's holiness as his purity and his perfection. And they are related to his holiness in that God is pure of anything that would compromise his holiness. But his holiness is not merely his purity. We may also associate God's holiness with his glory, with his majesty. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah was caught up into heaven, he saw God's majesty. God was on the throne. And the seraphim were calling, holy, holy, holy. And the holiness of God is a majestic thing. But it would be inadequate to say that God's holiness is his majesty. It's more than that. Much more. Holiness is a quality of God's that is God's alone. Unlike anyone and anything else. There is no one like him and nothing like him. When God sent Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt, Moses asked, whom shall I say has sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Why? Why I am who I am? 
Doesn't that just complicate things? God defined himself this way because there's no other way to define him. Now, he could have said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that would have told them something. In fact, from their perspective, it would have told them a lot. But it really says more about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than it does about God. And that's the point. Nothing outside of God can define him. He simply is who he is. He is beyond definition. And that is especially true of his holiness. Nothing outside of him can define his holiness. You can't say God's holiness is like, because there's nothing that it's like. And there's nothing intrinsic in us that gives us any insight into what it means that God is holy. Sometimes we call this the otherness of God. He's not like us. He's not like any other being or any other thing. He has this quality that is pure and it is glorious and it is exclusive to him. But if holiness is an attribute that is God's alone, then we're back to the question. What does Paul mean when he calls the believers in Philippi saints or holy? And the believers in Ephesus and in Colossae and in Rome and Corinth, he calls them all saints. He says that they are holy at one point or another in his letters to them. The word holy is often defined as separate or set apart. When that's applied to God, it means that he is eternally separated unto himself. He is other than anyone or anything. But when we say that the saints are holy, it doesn't mean that they are separated unto themselves. It means that they are set apart for God. So God's holiness cannot be defined according to anything outside of himself. But a saint's holiness can only be defined according to something or someone outside of himself. Specifically, saints are set apart unto God. But it's not just that saints are set apart in the sense of being designated. Saints aren't set apart in the way that you might set apart a portion of your paycheck every month to give to God. This setting apart also has a sense of being made acceptable. Saints are made suitable or made worthy to be associated with and even to be in the presence of God. 
Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was caught up into the throne room of God where he sees God in his holiness. The seraphim keep repeating, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's response? In verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Instant recognition that he is unworthy, unfit, to be in the presence of holy God. But then, then he writes, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And what we see here is a representation of Isaiah, a saint being made holy. Isaiah is made acceptable. He's made suitable to be in the presence of God who is holy. He isn't just set apart. He isn't just delegated for something, something happens to him. There's a transformation. He went from being altogether unworthy to being made worthy to be in God's presence. That is what is represented here. He doesn't gain the attribute of holiness as God possesses it. But he becomes holy in a way that he is made acceptable to God as God is holy. Now, we'll come back to how this is accomplished. But for now, I want us to see that this, what we see here in Isaiah chapter 6, pictures the entire purpose of redemptive history. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the point of all of this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. For the sake of his glory, he did this. He determined before the world began to do this work so that we could stand before him acceptable, worthy, holy. In Colossians 1 verse 22, he, the Lord Jesus, is going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Don't miss the word present here. He's the one who will bring you into heaven as one who is worthy and acceptable 
suitable to be in his presence for all eternity. And you can be assured that he is not going to show up with shoddy workmanship. His reputation, his glory is at stake here. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and he will present us holy and blameless and above reproach, where we will stand before him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. But remember what Paul says here to the Philippians. He says to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are, present tense, are at Philippi. He doesn't say, Jesus is going to make a saint out of you yet. He says, the saints who are at Philippi, holy at Philippi. He's saying that every believer in Philippi and Colossae and Corinth and Rome and Trinity Bible Church, everyone who partakes of God's grace is holy, is acceptable, is worthy of God. But how can that be? I know my heart. I know my mind, my tongue. I know what I do well enough to know that there are still things about me that are not worthy of a holy God. How can Paul call anyone a saint, holy, worthy? The answer begins right here in Philippians 1, verse 1. Saints are not saints in their own right. Stop trying to become a saint in your own right. They are saints in Christ Jesus. Every saint is in a very real and meaningful way in Christ Jesus. You are immersed in him in such a way that when the Father looks at you, when he judges you and evaluates you, he sees Christ Jesus. You aren't worthy based on you. You're worthy based on Jesus. No other religion even claims this. Muslims don't claim to be in Muhammad. They don't believe that Allah will judge them based on Muhammad's righteousness. Not that that would do them any good. They believe that they will be judged purely on their own works, good or bad. Buddhists don't claim to be in Buddha. They don't believe that their next incarnation will be based on anything to do with Buddha, but only on the life that they lived this time around. That's true of every single religion except Christianity. Only in Christianity is your worthiness based on someone other than yourself. Your sainthood is based on the life and death of the Lord Jesus, on the finished 
work of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul could call the Philippian Christians saints and holy. That's how you can be called holy in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't end there. But it begins there and everything is based on that. You're also given a new nature in Christ Jesus. The old nature, the old man, it was fallen and it was anything but holy. But now you have a new nature. In Ephesians 4, 24, Paul talks about the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You didn't achieve this. You didn't accomplish it. You received it. Apart from anything that you've done, a new self created by God after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the second reason that you can be called a saint. The first was that you are in Christ and you are being evaluated based on Christ's work, not your own. And the second is because you have received a new holy nature in Christ. Third reason, and this is only true because of the first two, your walk, that is your way of life, then begins to reflect the new creation that you are in Christ Jesus as he continues the work that he has begun in you. And make no mistake, he accomplishes this as well. If you partake of grace, if you are a saint, then he most assuredly will bring it to completion. I am sure of this, Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. His actual transforming work has begun and will carry on throughout this life. And it gives us confidence that we are, in fact, saints. And that we will be brought to completion when Christ returns. So what does Paul mean by saint? He means that we have a holy standing before God based on the life and death of the Lord Jesus. He means that we have received new holy natures when we were born again in Christ by His Holy Spirit. And it means that He is even now transforming our activity to be worthy of Him. So finally, the third question that I want to take up is this. How did saints become saints? Now, we've already addressed it to some degree. It has nothing to do with their own efforts. Everything to do with Jesus. That they are now in him, given a new nature and being transformed by him. But I want to dig into it just a bit deeper. 
And I want to do so by returning to Isaiah 6. And I want to take another look at these three verses that we considered earlier. Verses 5 through 7. I don't think that this is a passage that people generally associate with the gospel. But perhaps we should. Because the gospel only makes sense in view of the holiness of God. This point is lost in many presentations of the gospel today. And I think a lot of people are left confused by that. If God is love, and if he'd prefer not to punish people for their sins, they reason, then just don't punish them. He is God, after all. He's the one who makes the rules. He doesn't answer to anyone. Maybe he has a right to be offended by a lot of the things that people do. But if he's truly love, shouldn't he just be able to get past all the wrath and vengeance and eternal punishment? So the gospel doesn't make sense to them. Because God's holiness is missing. But it is only because he is holy that he will not abide that which is unholy in his presence. And we who are unholy in ourselves cannot endure his holiness. That's what we see in Isaiah 6. We see a man of unclean lips, he says, from a people of unclean lips who can't tolerate God's holiness. This is what Isaiah expresses in this vision. It's what every human being is facing. Because at some point, you will see the King, the Lord of hosts. And when you do, if you are unholy, woe is me, for I am lost Because he is holy, and we in ourselves are not. So what hope is there? What can save us from the crushing weight of God's holiness? The hope, the only hope, is represented by what comes next. One of the seraphim took a coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's mouth. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then Isaiah could tolerate God's holiness. He became worthy, acceptable, holy. Notice Isaiah didn't do anything except despair. He didn't do anything to change his state or to make himself acceptable to God. His guilt was taken. His sin atoned for. Who did that? Jesus. Only Jesus. The blood of bulls can't make a man holy before God. Looking forward to the cross, the blood of Jesus applied for Isaiah 
and every other Old Testament saint, making them holy and acceptable to God. That's the gospel. Sinners confronting the holiness of God are lost. They're destined for an eternity in hell. But the finished work of the Lord Jesus applied to that sinner makes him holy. And God welcomes him into his presence. That is what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus. It means that because of Jesus, you are now acceptable to be in God's presence. So what should we do with that? Knowing that we now have this holy standing with God because we are in Christ. And having this new nature. And with Him working in our lives to transform our walk, to match our nature. What should we do? I have a friend. When he was growing up, he had three brothers. And he used to tell me that every morning when his mother sent the four of him, her four boys, off to school, she would tell them, remember who you are. Remember who you are today. That's the charge this morning. As you leave here and go out into the world, remember who you are. You are a saint. You're holy in Christ Jesus. Act like it. He did the work. He made you who you are. Now remember that and walk in it. Listen to what Peter wrote in his first epistle. And I'll close with this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for i am holy heavenly father oh what a precious gift you've given us that you have made us acceptable based on the finished work of your son jesus christ and all that that cost him You've done this for us, for the sake of your glory. Father, may you be glorified in us, in this life, as we go forth and walk in the way that you have made possible for us. In Jesus' name, amen.